Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Fell, and together we'll be discussing the funny side of psychology. Yep, you and me babies are nothing like animals because we do a podcast and we can discuss animal behaviour in an intelligent, scientific manner. Without resorting to monkey suits or the Discovery Channel. Yes, exactly. Are there monkey suits in that song? It's a very long time since I've heard yeah. it. Yeah. And it's an even it's long like, time since I thought it was worth listening to. They go around causing havoc of a sexual nature. Sexual havoc. That sounds like a good band name. It does. Right. So, who cares what about what we think? What do you think, audience of presumably, you know, animals in the technical sense, but not that sort of animals? I'd love to have uh, an animal listener. <laughs> In a very real sense, as you say, we kind of do, but it would be, yeah, I don't, I haven't tried playing it to the cat that lives in our garden, so Probably we'll see scared. what he says. Te- well, um, I was, in preparation for this episode, I did come across the thing that I think I mentioned a while back, that dogs don't like heavy metal. I don't know how they feel about podcasts. No, I suppose I could try it on my guinea pigs and use them as, I suppose, um, uh, lab rats. I did not know you had guinea pigs, and I've visited and seen most of your house. Yeah, there's there's a reason that you didn't see the guinea pigs, and that's because they're in my brother Chris's room. Hi, Chris, but it's not a visitor room. <laughs> Hi, guinea pigs. Um, I'll, I'll may, maybe some other time when Chris is actually okay. at home and keeping his room in some kind of order. <laughs> we should have like an official. We should have like what was it? He's called Socks the Cat from Blue Peter. Uh, Okay. We should have uh, or Muhammad or whatever. I, it was. I assumed um, assumed that the the cat that doesn't actually belong to you but lives in your garden that you feed is the official psychomedia pet. I, I guess it probably is. Either that or the beanbag there. Oh well, yes. I mean, if we're excluding real animals, <laughs> I have an elephant inside an elephant made of stone from Tibet. Wow, it's like it's better uh, with metal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, feedback. Yes, feedback. Oh, shall I go first? Yes. I have feedback. Sorry, that's what I was doing. Because it was on the WordPress page. This is from Kieran. He says, Ben's description of his village pantomime gave me a distinct mystery Alaska feel. Perhaps a big screen showdown with the Royal Shakespeare Company is in order. And I'm pleased to say that both of us had to Google mystery Alaska. Yeah, it's by a Um, very famous director. Okay. And stars famous people or not? Stars Russell Crowe. So not. (laughs) <laughs> he's famous he's famous for being terrible at singing <laughs> uh does he sing in it do you know not in mystery alaska but in uh okay. Les he sings quite a lot some well, yes like that yes that, uh, anyway anyone who's seen the film <laughs> um yeah i'm reading the the summary and more importantly the reception section of the wikipedia page feels like maybe the comparison is not an entirely favorable one so uh i I'm not quite sure how to feel I think about what, this. What you should do is you should have, you know, a combined sing-off slash ice hockey match with Mystery Alaska. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a very small rural English village, Tim. I don't know if anyone would know what ice hockey was. Maybe if it was bowling for a pig or something like that. <laughs> or oh. whack the rat. Oh, I mean, you know, amazing game. In some senses, yes, but in other senses, immensely frustrating. Maybe that's just me. I don't think I've ever whacked a rat successfully. Maybe just you. I'm surprised that people don't. But you see, I I, I know that game has splat the rat because it rhymes. Okay. The principle is the same. It's just trying to time an action where you don't have any visual cues. Not something I can do. It's not something (laughs) I can do when I have got the visual cues. (laughs) 
I would make a terrible <laughs> they just, exterminator. They just put a wooden rat on a table and give you a stick, and you'd be, you know, comfortably challenged would, for an hour. I would, <laughs> I would destroy the table and the stick, <laughs> and probably hurt myself. The rat would be fine. They'd just be come back later, and there'd just be like a mile wide crater, <laughs> with just a perfectly preserved rat in the centre. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Um. Thinking of random chaos, I, I've got a couple of pieces of feedback, so I am kind of cheating here. But uh, one is from Jai, a recent Facebook yeah, fan page. Yeah, one week that I have feedback, you have two. Brilliant. Thanks, Internet. <laughs> well, technically, I had a, a third one, but I just kind of skipped it because it's less exciting uh, than the others. Um, Jai. Yeah, um, I, could, I could choose to pick and choose better feedback. Yeah. Well, technically. I've got so many Internet friends. Yeah, well, I have real friends. <laughs> One of these is from my real friend. <laughs> yeah, but it's my real friend too. You you saw her first. Anyway, um, yeah, we've got a new Facebook fan page and I message anyone who, uh, and usually they don't message back because sometimes these people are spurious and don't really exist. Anyway, apparently Jai <laughs> found us through Stitcher, which means that my effort putting us up on Stitcher was worthwhile. Um, looking for... Psych- <laughs> One listener, hooray. Well, I, you know, actually more than yeah. that. Uh, psychology, they were looking for psychology-based podcasts since they're a psych minor, um, which to me is like a child with magic powers. Uh, <laughs> Non-UK universities, so weird. Not uh, someone who applies the, the pick of academic rigor to the mountain of bad psychological bullshit. Oh, uh, no, it's a, um, an odd, an odd uh, chord. Uh, is what it is no um oh, i see so the uh the point being that uh she, she meant to click on the one right below psychomedia uh but then uh accidentally clicked on us and then found that that we were worth listening to and i love that that's brilliant that is how people are going to find our show for years yeah. to come. <laughs> i think that is if we have any demographic is the demographic of people who find us completely by accident but then stick with us because we're i was going to say great sticky <laughs> oh well you know ben all the best things in life anyway no exactly. um other feedback uh mira um our good friend uh, guest on the show sent me a message about some of the things that have been happening in my life including my car crash she said in case there is any residual trauma from the multiple car accidents and traumas thanks for making sure that we know it's multiple both accidents and traumas she says listen to episode 25 of psychomedia from 27 minutes and 17 seconds to 27 minutes and 25 seconds i've been meaning to point this out for ages i surprised myself with how hilarious i found it at the time sorry if it just increases the trauma so i looked it up i can't be bothered to you know edit it in here so i'll just repeat what it's all things i said a very important band timothy swan and ben fell doing it live angry train noises and that is her eight what? second clip that's supposed to cheer me up whereas instead it's oh. just kind of aud- auditory filth <laughs> brilliant so oh well thanks mira um i you know we we expect only the highest of highbrow feedback from our sometime contributors and you have not failed to impress <laughs> specific second timings from an episode that was you know a very long time ago it is impressive if disturbed I, I do appreciate it. isolated the, the time of it scientific a little too rigor, specifically yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I ever really... Sh- do you ever find yourself, you know, shipping your friends, Ben? I'm, I'm guessing from the silence. <laughs> the answer is either yes or no. Um, it's either emphatically yes or emphatically no. Exactly. Um, so I'm lost in a reverie of shipping. Things that can, uh, 
you know, succeed really well or go terribly badly, a bit like an, you know, a, a critical miss or a critical hit. Uh, uh, what have we uh, done this week, Ben? <laughs> Did we both click it? Uh, probably. Almost okay. <laughs> Uh, we have it in stereo now. Uh, this week, we ranked, we levelled up our nerdery to probably around about level 65, I'd imagine, by playing Dungeons & Dragons. Not only did we play Dungeons & Dragons, but we played Dungeons & Dragons online via, not Dungeons & Dragons online, but Dungeons <laughs> & Dragons, comma, online. Yeah. Uh, via a, a website called Roll20, which allows you to kind of do... Uh, collaborative sort of maps and moving your tokens around and all this kind of thing and it's extraordinarily geeky but it was really good fun i i really enjoyed it i hope you did too you can give me feedback on my dming style well i have to say i did really enjoy doing it uh a lot of the things uh, oh, i found I slow and frustrating were mostly my own fault for rolling a one for initiative <laughs> i would like to apologize for telling you to shut up at one point i felt really <laughs> bad about that afterwards did you i, I thought did. it was totally justified <laughs> <laughs> well that's that is okay that is the way round that things should be yeah um, no. It's better that I, I shouldn't feel really bad that you did it and you feel it was totally justified. I need to, uh, it's something I need to learn to do as a DM is to step back and just allow the players to get on with it. Yeah. Uh, whatever uh, it may be. The bit I enjoyed the most was trying to figure out my character and how she acts. And apparently she's a little more manic than I originally imagined. <laughs> yeah, there's. I feel like there's some pretty deep-seated layers of repression and madness simmering under the surface there yeah clearly clearly i see more of my like i maybe once sat down uh with a, a woman and we watched 500 days of summer on the entire principle that we were the two characters in it um anyway and <laughs> to, to the extent that in the end she gets married to someone else but um Sorry, that was a bit too dark a joke. It's yeah, that, a joke. that it's only a joke. Went well serious all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and I apparently know. Actually, I am the one who channels Sui Deschanel. Right. Yeah, that is the actually fact... who your character reminded me of. Uh, yeah. Um, and also the fact that my character was much more flirtatious than I was expecting because I do crossplay whenever I'm doing role playing of any sort. But my characters are usually a bit more butch. Uh, I did not notice the flirt. The flirting, I have Oh, did to say. you not? Okay, no. there were some bits where I was like, actually, this is going a lot, a lot weirder uh, than I was expecting. I mean, it um, did go a lot weird. Well, it didn't go more weird than I was expecting. It went exactly as weird as I was expecting. Um, much of the chat in the game was taken up whenever it came around to Tim's turn with cries of Moon Mace! Well, yes. Uh, uh, which... I, I did not pick my equipment out. I told it to equip me automatically. Apparently being a war priest cleric gives you access to a mace. And being a devotee to the moon goddess, um, I, I, you know, moon mace. Um, nice. And I smashed things with my moon mace. Sometimes that was helpful, <laughs> but not often. <laughs> Most of the time I smashed them very successfully and somehow they weren't hurt. Conclusions from the session, though, seem to be that monks are deeply overpowered. <laughs> yes deeply deeply overpowered so i'm going to need to look to that as the dungeon master i will start throwing everything at the monk within the first okay. couple of rounds of combat trying to find things that are effective against unarmed fighters mm. um but you know so it was good acid fun. It i hear is quite good <laughs> <laughs> great um so yeah it, it was good fun i'm glad we did it um 
I look forward to exploring my character further and discovering mm. that she she is the new girl. We're just going to end up living in an apartment. How many male characters are there in the new girl? Three. Uh, I don't. I think it's three actually. Yeah. I, this is the thing. None of them are like giant dragons or half demons, though. Well, maybe in spirit. I don't. Um, I've never seen is it Schmidt? Schmidt is like the super naive one. Schmidt is like the the dragonborn one. <laughs> this is funny to us and the people who played the game. Yes, so I think one of our listeners. So, <laughs> um, sh- shall we uh, move on to uh, yeah? Magic? Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, fun. You should you should try it. Get, yeah. get over the prejudice against it it is actually a surprisingly fun way to spend your time yeah exactly you should do your of the week first yes I should so um, no I can't think of a good belaboured segue except to say that in the January sales uh, I bought a um, Kindle book it was a triple pack of uh, Johnson Ron's books and uh so uh, Ben has previously recommended Johnson Rollins' The Psychopath Test. Um, but uh, I have started on the first one in that series, uh, the other two being The Many Steric Goats, which of course was adapted into a very funny film. Uh, this one is called Them. Um, and essentially, uh, John Ronson, he... Yeah, I've got his name right this time. I haven't been, you know, making mistakes. That has been deliberate, but it hadn't got any reaction. So I'm going back to calling him uh, well, every time, you, every time you say it, the only thing that I can think of is Ron, the uh, image on the internet of Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation and underneath Swan Ronson, which is just a swan <laughs> with a moustache. <laughs> uh, if only I could grow facial hair. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, John Ronson uh, goes around and he travels with extreme conspiracy theorists uh, a chapter at a time to try and discover who the New World Order are and whether there's any truth in it, and what these people are like up close and personal, starting with kind of the Abu Qatada of his day, the most famous hate preacher in London from an Islamic extremist point of view, mm. and uh, who at one point tells him, you shouldn't be embarrassed to be a Jew. I mean, we're still going to wipe out the nation of Israel, but you shouldn't be embarrassed to be a Jew. You shouldn't hide your identity. That's worse. Wow. Um, so it's a really interesting book. Because it gets, you know, it humanizes all of these really weird people and just highlights how weird both the people who are fighting the forces of kind of uh, extremist and racist ideology and the people who are having those um, kind of ideas are. Essentially, the conclusion is people are weird, but it's really engagingly written because obviously John Ronson's got this great light style for really heavy topics. Mm. So I do recommend it. And if there's the three packs still available on Kindle, you can get it for a very low, low price. No, no. Awesome. Well, uh, I can't think of any segue from that to my media of the week, except that I suppose there are conspiracy theories surrounding American politics, and it's very conspiratorial, I guess, uh, because my media of the week this week is... And some people with extremist views. That is true. Uh, people are weird. Um, my media of the week this week is the new serial on Netflix, actually. It's called House of Cards, starring Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright, who... Uh, the cast of The Princess Bride are having a bit of a resurgence in recent times. You've got Mandy Potemkin in uh, Homeland. Oh, and he's brilliant in Homeland. Uh, he's astonishing. And Robin Wright in House of Cards, playing Kevin Spacey's wife and those two together are just startlingly good to watch um it's the the premise is a uh well i guess what's his face 
who plays the um, magician in the swamp, um, he is in Toy Story. That's been going on quite successfully in recent times. That is months. true. I was talking sort of more recently than that. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and highbrow TV drama, if you can call her. Yes, 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 yes. But so the premise of it is like a, a, I guess it would be a congressional whip for, I assume, the Democrats, although I don't think it's actually been explicitly stated so far, um, who essentially guides and gets the uh, presidential candidate into power and is sort of responsible for his success and the success of those around him uh, is almost convinced is convinced that he will be a shoo-in for Secretary of State, I think, and is uh, dropped unceremoniously at the last minute um, and told to stay where he is and takes this very badly and decides that he's going to bring down the entire administration in some way or another. And the show appears to be about Kevin Spacey, this character, just ruining everyone's lives, basically. And he's a, you know, a, a highly driven, he's got this uh, sort of s- kind of sadistic, no holds barred, kind of evil person. There's no one, no one in it is really good. It's like the anti-West Wing. In the West Wing, even the bad guys, you know, have, a, you know, they have honor and dignity and goodness at their hearts, even if they go about it in different ways. In this, absolutely no one has honour or dignity and goodness in their hearts. But are um, they competent? Oh, some of I them Because I figure the third so. part of that triangle is like the thick of it, or Veep, I suppose, for American mm. politics. Where yeah, actually. Everyone is kind of either, like, either malevolent or um, benevolent, but they're all rubbish anyway, so it doesn't make any difference what their motivations are. I guess this is a bit more varied, like... Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright's characters are both hugely competent... And there are hopefully forces in opposition to them as the show tra- goes on, who will at least give them pause for thought. Otherwise, yep. it's gonna—they're just gonna kind of steamroller everyone. But they—it's very much about them, you know, playing people off each other and gaining power over others and all that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, highly recommended. Very, very good and really impressive, given that it's like a Netflix own show yeah. like yeah it's really high production does, does it give you hope for arrested development season four obviously one of the other big tv shows coming to netflix is, is that going to be on netflix as well yeah wow then that's yes very much so as long as they haven't literally spent all their money on house of cards i hear it's very expensive it certainly looks very polished yeah um so yeah it's not well many web original series that you can say that about mm. but then, so there's not many starring Kevin Spacey either. No, that is that is true. Um, <laughs> I can't think of any apart from <laughs> Usual Suspects spin-off. <laughs> <laughs> that would right. be great. <laughs> um, so, thinking of uh, cold-blooded intelligence creatures like politicians, I believe we're going to move on to talking about some animals. So, what you got? <laughs> oh, I love the horn one. So, uh, yeah, cold-blooded yet intelligent creatures who rise to the heat and pressure of... Never mind. Okay, so my first study is about lizards... Chances get- of anything coming from Mars. <laughs> my first study is about lizards getting cleverer. 
And if I had the dun dun dun, I would use it, but I don't. Okay, try it. Try it again. Try it again. My first study is about lizards getting cleverer. Thank there we you. go. I, it was definitely worth the, the repetition. So, um, this is a study published in Outside Jeb, <laughs> uh, which I. I well, it's inside Jeb. It's hard to read. I, I don't know what Jeb is. I feel like I, I suppose. Oh no, Journal of Experimental Biology. I assume I, it was going to be sorry. Journal of Biology. Yeah, uh, I'm very sorry about that. All it says on the actual document is outside Jeb, which uh, <laughs> makes me laugh. I just go on Urban Dictionary. I'm sure it'll be fine. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yes. Moving on. This is about, uh, so Tim, you may know, you may not know, that if, if you were a lizard, uh, changing the temperature around you could alter your speed, your size, or even your sex, which makes me feel very, very sorry for lizards. I mean, like, imagine it. You're, Mr. Allen, the lizard, wakes up one morning and he's like, oh, look, dear, it's a beautiful sunny day out. <laughs> ah! Damn it. Now I have to go back to the depot office and get my birth certificate changed to Ellen. <laughs> Ellen the lizard and what will the wife say I sure I'm glad the government passed that gay marriage bill um, I don't so actually know if it includes provision for lizards but uh, I don't I don't think it does uh, I think that, that lizards are still one of the most you know uh, excluded and discriminated against uh, parts of British society you know lizard <laughs> lizard British it's not even included on most ethnic minority <laughs> um, Although, yes. having said that, of course, our head of state, you know, going back to them, <laughs> our head of state, <laughs> our head of state, head of go- no, head of state, that's right, uh, yeah. is, of course, a lizard woman. So This is true. Indeed. That, that relies on you knowing that David Icke believes that the royal family are lizards, by the way, listeners. In case you hadn't caught up with the 90s sports journalist has a breakdown uh, <laughs> news. Obviously, all this is completely ridiculous and would never happen. I mean, a gay marriage bill passing the House of Lords? Laughable. Ha <laughs> ha, satire. Um, <laughs> what uh, anyway, <laughs> I was just going to uh, point out that, you know, um, I've forgotten now. It was something about that lizards are probably used to it. They've structured their society a bit more flexibly. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very much on board. And something about alternative tail sexu- <laughs> Alternative sexuality. Yeah, I mean, when your primary sexual characteristic can be bitten off by an eagle at the slightest provocation, it le- leads to a very, you know... I mean, so 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 could yours, right? I mean, your broad shoulder, which I think is the primary sexual characteristic for men, isn't it? I can't, okay, there there are two ways that could have gone. You've decided for broad shoulders. The other is, you know, more akin to a lizard's tail. Neither of those are going to waving in the faces of passing eagles. <laughs> there aren't many passing eagles. Uh, what I will, no, I remember what I was going to say. Is that, um, it's really hard to play lizard uh, top trumps because you go out into the playground and suddenly the sun shines on them and all their stats change. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, all of this is laughable and ridiculous, uh, we hope. Anyway, what we're really talking about is uh, temperatures during incubation. If you incubate the eggs of lizards uh, at warmer temperatures, the eggs are more likely to hatch out into males, for example, and cooler incubation temperatures tend to produce females. The same is true of crocodiles, but the pattern is apparently reversed for turtles, the mavericks of the reptile kingdom. (laughs) There will be pictures. You know, their alternative surfer lifestyles. 
Oh, how appropriate. How very appropriate. Just wait till you see the picture. Anyway, uh, some researchers at the University of Sydney wanted to test the effect of temperature on more subtle attributes of lizards, specifically their ability to learn. The authors, uh, Joshua Emiel and Richard Shine, went out and grabbed several three-lined skinks off the street because this is Australia and there are lizards absolutely everywhere. I can attest to that fact. Um, Then they incubated half of the eggs at a toasty 22 degrees and the other half at a chilly 16 degrees. And when the baby lizards hatched, they were given lizard-adapted IQ tests, which are almost exactly identical to human IQ tests, with the tiny change that they involve trapping their participants in a plastic box before poking them in the tail with a paintbrush. Right. Yeah, I mean, you have to have the extended uh, intelligence test before you get that level. I did not enjoy this block practical, I have to say. (laughs) Uh, It was more fun to run than to participate, (laughs) I'll tell you. I don't know where they got those giant paintbrushes from. That's what I want to know. Anyway, the lizards, specifically what happens is you place your your baby lizard directly between two, like, little hidey holes, and then you startle them with a paintbrush applied suddenly to the tail. However, one of the hiding places is actually blocked off with a transparent sheet of plexiglass. <laughs> and the experimenters, you just simply measure how long it takes the lizards to learn which one is the accessible hole. Uh, I can already see a major flaw in this design in that there is a, will be a significant difference based on which hole the lizard chooses in the very first trial, since any that choose incorrectly will subsequently have to deal with medium to severe concussion as a result of running headfirst into a glass door. <laughs> How much speed can these skinks build up? Well, I don't know. Lizards are pretty swift. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, it's true. This, this is clearly a fundamentally flawed paradigm. Anyway, setting that aside, Amiel and Shine found that although the wee baby lizards were capable of learning, all of them were capable of learning and improving over time in spite of their crippling head injuries, those who were incubated at higher temperatures learned faster and they made fewer mistakes, independent, and this is important, independent of their sex, their speed, or or their size, all of which could kind of be indications that they were just like one of the advantaged members of the litter kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Which is all, you know, this is all very cool or hot, I suppose. But the author's... What I found quite interesting was the authors point out that with increasing global temperatures, this would sort of implicate that lizards are generally getting cleverer, uh, the dire implications of which may be summed up thusly. Clever girl. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're all doomed. (laughs) We are all doomed. Although I did read somewhere else, I didn't bother to follow up on this because I figured it was too depressing. I do remember reading recently another article saying that increasing global temperatures are likely to cause the mass extinction of lizards. So, yay for that. Yeah, it's kind of lose either way. Either they rise up and they destroy us all, or they just all disappear, and that's sad. That is sad. No more three-line skinks to make run into plexiglass windows. Exactly. What will humanity do? What will the Australian biologists spend their time doing? Same, but with kangaroos. You need a lot tougher glass. <laughs> you do. And you need a much bigger plastic pot to hold them under. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is the end of my study. And now we have a brand new segment. Special Recurring bra- segment. 
hopefully, <laughs> especially for our animal episode. You know what it is. It's bee facts. Oh, no, not the bees. Not the bees. Ah! Bee facts. Bee facts. Bee facts. Bee facts. Yes, it's bee facts. <laughs> you formed a barbershop quartet. A barbershop quartet. <laughs> a barbershop quartet. Anyway. No, that's something much higher. <laughs> bee facts. Bee facts. Number one. Someone called Homeland Security. Australian researchers discovered that honeybees can distinguish human faces. Uh, they showed insects black and white pictures of faces and gave them treats for the right answers. And the bees learned the difference. Supplementary bee fact. They've hoped that Homeland Security have also trained bees to recognise explosives. And bumblebees are also known to be able to poke their tongues out in tandem with the rhythms of like rhythmically given sweet rewards. So bees have rhythm, they can recognise faces and also explosives. The cool thing about the explosives ones is you have them in the thing and you've trained them and then you have them. But once they're done, they just they free the bees. They don't kill the bees. They free the bees once they've done their job, which is really nice. It's really rare. (laughs) So uh, shall we move on to some some more clever animals? Let's do it. There will okay. be more bee facts later, by the way. Don't worry. Of course. And you will of be hearing course. that jingle several times. <laughs> yeah, until you are definitely bored of it. So, uh, Hall and Schaller from 1964, I believe. So, we are kicking it old school by using phrases like kicking it old school, which obviously <laughs> is a phrase I've never used before in my life. Uh, we're also in the old school investigating for a caretaker dressed as a monster. No, wait, we're in the old school because this is some relatively well-known animal behaviour work from the 60s. And so what they wanted to do was systematically examine what had been reported anecdotally since 1939, that otters were killing Nazi crabs as part of a marine special operations force. (laughs) Now, this was surprising since otters hadn't previously shown allegiance to democratic ideals or indeed tool use. So uh, the otters concerned were sea otters. Before we go on, have you seen the South Park episodes with the otters? Uh, No, I haven't. No. Oh, it's amazing. There's like, I think Cartman goes to the future when the world has been taken over by, or at least partially taken over by like a post-apocalyptic tribe of uh, sentient giant otters. And they're, they're at war with the humans because the humans are heathens, because the humans eat their food off tables rather than off their bellies. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I don't recognise it, so we'll have to include it because it is very relevant to this study. So, <laughs> sea otters have the binomial name Enhydrolutris, which sounds to me like if you cut a sea otter's head off, two more would sprout in its place. Well, <laughs> I've looked into the etymology and obviously hydra actually means... <laughs> oh, you told me not to, but it's so tempting. No, you're not allowed. You're banned. N- not the etymology. Just a little bit. <laughs> okay, we'll give you that. The ot- <laughs> <laughs> but no more because otters are so punnable i've banned ben puns about it's, otters. this is i'm just going to be whimpering in a corner for the entire exactly this, this is like torture so yeah um if you cut a sea otter's head off two more sprays place no actually the etymology is that hydra means water and n means in and lutris is the form of lutra meaning otter so the name literally translates as otter in the water a name that replaced lutra marina sea otter um, and for some reason, they changed the washing machine from sea otter to otter in the water, which, of course, distinguishes it from all other otters, except for all other otters. <laughs> so 
Paul and Shala went to Point Lobos State Park near Monterey, California. And Monterey is, of course, famous for being the only American cheese that anyone outside America would ever eat. I mean, come on, seriously. We in the old world, we already invented not merely single Gloucester, but double Gloucester and brie and mozzarella. We did not need a fourth cheese for a four cheese pizza, save perhaps a blueberry with blueberries. But the Americans, they tried, they tried. Anyway, there were five to 15 sea otters visible from this park. And for five days, they observed them from 7 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. And they scoured the coast to keep an eye on as many otters as possible at the same time. Um, and then I'll uh, note one of the things they say. However, when a prolonged tool-using sequence was noted, we combined. So the <laughs> us could observe the animal continuously while the other... Biological animals. Megazord, activate! Uh, yes, exactly. Hall, Shala, Shol, Hala, combine! So they formed... <laughs> Uh, an animal behavior megazord, which is, of course, the species <laughs> Megazordus megazordus, uh, which usually displays very violent behavior. But the subspecies Megazordus megazordus ecologistica, very hard to use Latin, uh, is known for occasionally taking breaks from this aggression to use binoculars and ranging scopes to observe cute fur furry animals. Because it's important to remember, as someone reminded me today, uh, sea otters uh, float uh, together, the couples, and hold hands to keep from drifting away from their romantic partners. I just got the image of, like, one of the Power Rangers, like, when they do their bit, it's like, Mastodon, Tyrannosaurus, and the new ranger goes, Otter! And it, <laughs> is, it isn't even, like, the big, like, plastic toy dinosaur. It's just an otter playing, like, with a stone on its belly looking adorable. <laughs> well, it's amazing how many monsters you can defeat by looking adorable, right? Sorry. I don't really understand martial arts uh, TV series. <laughs> anyway, um... So, uh, the peak otter eating time was between 8am and 9am, but it varied between the otters, and indeed continued into the night when it became too dark to observe. But clearly, like with humans, for otters, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And then they would then rest together, but eating was, except for mothers and their young, a solo activity. So, the otters basically dive down and get something to eat, like a crab or a sea urchin, and then resurface and eat it whilst lying on their backs. And let me assure you, if I tried to do that, it would end terribly. <laughs> so, sea urchins are apparently easily consumed, whilst large crabs often get a leg bitten off and run around on the chest of the otter whilst being picked apart, which is pretty kind of horrifying. Kind of grisly, actually. <laughs> For one of the cutest animals there are, and sea otters certainly are up at the top of that, it is pretty horrendous. Mustella day, man. Yeah. <laughs> Mustella day problems? <laughs> anyway mussels were the principal component of the otter's diet and apparently they dived in different ways for different foods but confusingly hall and shaller seem to be able to find out when an otter wanted a certain type of food but they don't tell you how they know that uh even though they refer to it in a table they do not explain that table at all so tool use at the time in the 60s considered exclusively human still certainly rare amongst animals although obviously the corvids like our friends the scrub jays have been seen to do it too um the otter would get a stone onto its stomach and then bring the muscle crashing down onto it as an anvil and crack huge noise apparently they do this with such force that it was audible to the observers on the shore over the sound of the sea which is incredible so the first hit is usually a targeting hit to line up the muscle, and then they would do a sequence of 2 to 22 blows to open the muscles at 2 second intervals. And then they'd bite it, and if it didn't open, they'd restart the cracking process with the rock. And it would take them about 45 seconds on average to open a muscle, which is a lot quicker than it is for me. Um, then again, I guess it's about the time it takes me to eat something uh, or make something with cheese in it, which is about my 40% of my diet and 40% of 
the otter's diet is mussels. So the stones were smooth, averaging five inches in diameter, and varied between flat, round, other shapes. They basically would use anything that was about the right size. So occasionally, but not usually, the otter would keep hold of a stone for various feeding episodes. And we should have such a loose attachment to our material possessions. The maximum amount of time spent holding onto a stone was 12 feeding episodes. So if they take about 45 seconds on average each, that's not very long at all. And the otters did have access to many stones, so they could just go and grab a new one really easily. But they suspected that when it was held onto, the stone was, and when it was collected in the first place, the stone was brought up in the otter's armpit. Uh, For some reason, the idea of other mammals having armpits is kind of hilarious. So they discovered this. Because one time it had... New discovery! Otters have armpits. Breaking news. Yeah. Well, you know, they discovered this because one time it had a stone and then it dived under the water and emerged with two crabs, one in each hand. And then after it ate them, it reached its armpit and retrieved the anvil stone. Uh, So uh, what I want to know is, do marine mammals sweat? I don't know that. I haven't looked it up. Um... I guess. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll wiki it while you're carrying on. Okay. Um, so, very rarely, the otters would bang, and they actually used the very specific scientific word, bang. There is literally a graph with an axis labelled number of bangs per episode, which sounds like a graph of, I don't know, Hollyoaks or Game of Thrones. Uh, other food items on the rocks. So, not on the rocks, you know, on the rock on their belly. Not- Crab on the rocks, please. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go in and order... Oh, man. A, uh, a like an otter like pool bar would be amazing. Just all the otters just floating up to the bar on their backs with with little mojitos balanced on their tummies, so, sucking up through a straw. Um, question: How much do otters actually sweat? The sea otter has sweat glands, hair, and gives birth to live pups. However, other aquatic mammals do not have sweat glands, and camels also. That well-known aquatic mammal. <laughs> Okay, so sea otters are the only aquatic mammal that sweat. How Apparently, marine mammals like camels uh, have perfectly functioning kidneys, which means that they, they do all their sweating via urine. Okay, because I was going to... I guess it doesn't matter when they're aquatic, because I was going to say, if in the future we come up with a kind of biologically self-improved human, maybe we will have dolphin kidneys, but maybe <laughs> not if there's only like that method for cooling. Um, anyway, so sometimes the otters would bring up a stone that was too large to carry as well as food. One of them even being silly enough to balance it on his chest before realising, oh wait, I've got nothing to bang on it. Also, this is really heavy. I seem to be sinking. And sometimes they just bang food against the chest without there being a stone. I mean, mostly those were otters with rock hard abs. And sometimes they just did the move. They didn't have any food in their hands and they didn't have a stone on the chest, but they would just kind of make a banging. Um, oh, it's practicing. I remember actually seeing a video of... Um little little uh uh, some kind of monkey the ones that the ones i think it was the ones that like bathe in hot springs on mountains oh i can picture them but i couldn't tell you what they were called um i I saw a video of them they do a very similar thing i think with like shellfish from those self-same hot springs or something and they the baby monkeys learn to you know find rocks and bang them on the shellfish but you you would see yeah, basically, the mon- the little babies would try out a series of trial and error. First, they would like take the muscle and bang it against the rock, and then they'd just bang the rock on the ground, and then they'd like get a stick and poke the muscle with the stick. And eventually, one of them would learn to bang the rock on the muscle, and then he would kind of got it. So okay. maybe it, it's just like a sort of process of trial and error. They know that 
rocks are involved and muscles are involved and some combination of those factors will produce dinner. Yeah. So that's muscles. Uh, the other key part of a sea otter's diet is abalones, which uh, are kind of limpety things yet to make it into French cuisine as far as I'm aware. And so these don't tend to be bashed on rocks in the same way. Although there's some suggestion that they're bashed on rocks underwater, where obviously the otters can't really be observed. And sometimes they're just kind of grabbed and ripped off because apparently if you take an abalone by surprise, you can take it off the um, <laughs> rock that it's attached to. That's what it says. Anyway, so that it. fills us in on otters' behaviour in a completely new way. And previous work on otters living further north in the world hadn't seen this behaviour. So something about the different regional climate was also part of why they do this. It's kind of weird to see otters live in California, because all the other places they live are Oregon and Washington State and Russia and uh, Canada, basically. They're usually much more northern. Hmm. So... Paul and Schaller wrote to the people who had not observed tool use in northern otters and found that young northern otters did, but the teeth of adult ones were strong enough for any muscle they could find there. And similarly, tool use was very rare elsewhere, but it didn't take the form of anvil so much as hammer in other otters, including those in captivity. So they're really one process away from ironworking. <laughs> other young otters in the north had been seen to be merely pounding rocks and bits of coral together. And that is, of course, the otter version of stomp, because it is hard mm. to stomp in water. Anyway. Just give them some dustbin lids and a couple of brooms and they'll be on Broadway in no time. Exactly. And that's the conclusion. Being animal behaviorists, they don't speculate what this first ever documented tool use in non-human mammals might say about humanity. All they tell us <laughs> is that it happens and now they've observed it properly. Hooray. Well done. So, more oh, B-facts. No, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Tim, did you know that until the late 1660s, the queen bee was known as the king bee? No, I didn't actually. I thought that was quite awesome. Dutch scientist with the best name ever, Jan Schwammerdam, <laughs> uh, dissected a, the biggest bee he could find in a hive and discovered ovaries. Wow. That's the like shock a... of the medical profession. What is this? A female in a position of authority? Madness. <laughs> when you say authority, I say, you know, continuous breeding. Yeah, basically enslavement. Anyway, uh, on the subject of uh, apine? apine terminology, would that be the right? I don't know. Anyway, you should know. You're the one with the B facts. On the subject of B words... Uh, the term the bee's knees was coined by American cartoonist Tad Dorgan, who was incidentally also responsible for the terms the cat's pyjamas, which I have heard, the flea's eyebrows, which I haven't, and the canary's tusks, which is just stupid. <laughs> you say stupid, I say brilliant. I think that phrase is the canary's tusks. <laughs> yeah, be facts. Oh, it's my okay. bad. Right. Okay. More, psych more psychology-ish, mainly biology, actually, but never mind. This week we are kind of discovered this. zoo media. Yeah. So, uh, this study is about squirrels, the nemesis of the scrub jay. You may recall way, way back in the mists of ancient psychomedia history in the distant age known as 2011, we spent a happy episode implicitly slagging off the nut-locating abilities of the humble squirrel in favour of the mighty scrub jay. Uh, if, if, if there is an official animal of psychomedia, it is probably the scrub jay. Yep. 
I've uh, ever seen one. <laughs> in particular, uh, we noted that squirrels, far from being able to deftly locate all the nuts they bury, are actually pretty much just running around, digging random holes and shouting, I meant to do that honest, whenever they strike acorn. Uh, however, it turns out the joke is on us, because I am both now both proud and deeply, deeply sorry to present what I hope will be the first of many official psychomedia retractions slash corrections slash legally mandated apologies. <laughs> For you see, Team Squirrel is fighting back. Leading the charge are two biologists from the University of Princeton uh, called Lucia Jacobs and Emily Lyman. They published cutting-edge, up-to-the-minute, hot-off-the-press data on the subject of squirrel memory a mere 25 years ago. Under the okay, hard hitting. right. Because <laughs> I have a study that's a bit hotter off the press that I've done data <laughs> in that it came out this week. <laughs> wow. So you carry that's... on with your hot-off-the-press nonsense. Uh, it had the hard-hitting, no-nonsense title of Grey Squirrels Remember the Location of Buried Nuts. Which is such a good title. I mean, it's, it's impactful, it's sexy, it's informative, it's so good, it makes me want to see the movie of that paper. They should make a sequel to the movie of that paper, which they could call Grey Squirrels, Remember of the Location of Buried Nuts 2, Back in the Habit Tap, primarily composed of deciduous woodland with excessive tracts of dense understory vegetation. I have another uh, Grey Squirrels Remember the Location of Buried Nuts title if you want to hear it, Tim. I think you might like it. I, I mean, you know, I, I guess we, we owe it to our listeners uh, to, to let you have some puns in the episode. <laughs> You'll, I feel that you particularly will appreciate these. Grey Squirrels Remember the Location of Buried Nuts 3, The Return of the Jedi. Jedi? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. With, it's it, not a question of whether I get it or not. Because the, the Sith Squirrels are like, are like Sith, I guess, like Darth, Darth Squirrel. Squirrelius, Darth Squidius. No, he sounds like he should have tentacles. Although that would be kind of cool. Do any do any Sith have tentacles? You would probably. Um, oh, uh, Malaval definitely has face tentacles. I think. Thank you, Wikipedia. Tim, Wikipedia Swan. Actually, <laughs> to be honest, Darth Jader definitely works. Better, I mean, I think it's it? technically Tim Baltar Swan. If you're going to give me a Star Wars name, at least call give me the one whose surname is Swan. So yeah, uh, Darth Jader She's was a woman. better, which means that Return of the Jedi, Jedi doesn't really work, uh, but never mind. Pictures in the show notes. Anyway, of course. squirrels, uh, they're not as rubbish as the thing they're famous for being good at as we previously thought they were, or weren't. I lose track. Anyway, the authors, uh, Jacobs and Lyman, reasoned thusly, the spatial memory involved in nut caching, not can be to be confused with cash nutting, the sport of headbutting country musician Nike and Johnny Cash, popular in the late eighties. The spatial memory involved What about cashew nut caching? Well I was thinking cash nutting could also be like uh taking wads of money and headbutting them or uh, investing like, investing in nuts as sprinkling a sprinkling them with almonds, I don't know. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about here, Tim. Try to keep up. The spatial memory involved in nut caching is actually pretty taxing when you think about it. Bear in mind that a single squirrel will make many, many, many caches across a wide area and will probably only be able to actually encode the location of any given cache once when it actually makes it because they don't really have time when they're hoarding the food to keep going back to existing caches once they've been buried. When you compare this to a similar foraging behaviour, finding actually finding the food sources in the first place that's pretty easy you know if you find a tree that produces acorns 
once you've found the tree, you'll probably keep going back to the tree and keep reminding yourself of its location. Uh, so that's kind of an easier process. The second point made by Jacobson Lyman is that given that squirrels bury their caches of nuts over a wide, wide area, they often overlap in that area with caches of other squirrels. And this, given that the squirrels are capable of locating buried nuts by odour alone, it means that if they run across another squirrel's cache during the nut retrieval season, they will almost certainly dig it up and steal the nuts. Therefore, so They are not cooperative animals. They are not cooperative at all. Therefore, it seems that when seeking out buried nuts, squirrels may hunt for both their own caches and those of other squirrels. But the reasoning of the authors is that if they are, are genuinely employing spatial memory, they should be better at finding their own caches than just sort of sniffing out those of other squirrels. Seems reasonable. Which, yeah, seems fairly straightforward. So they uh, went out and bought a bunch of squirrels from their local squirrel emporium, I assume, and released them into a large sort of outdoor arena. They began the experiment by feeding the pre uh, squirrels pre-shelled hazelnuts, which is sort of the squirrel equivalent of peeled grapes. So I like to think that the squirrels were fed them by scantily clad squirrel maidens waving palm fronds whilst burly badgers stood around in loincloths hitting big brass gongs. But they don't actually say whether that was explicitly the case or not because the experimental detail in this write-up was shockingly lax. Um, once they'd uh, filled the squirrels up to bursting uh, with the shelled hazelnuts, uh, leading them to look a little bit like hedonism bot out of Futurama, they were given a bunch of unshelled nuts uh, based on the idea that squirrels only hoard when they're satiated. So they needed to kind of fill the squirrels up with nuts to induce the hoarding behaviour. What tended to happen then was the squirrels, being kind of pigs, would eat a few of the shelled hazelnuts anyway, possibly sort of checking that they were actually okay, edible. And then they would rush off and bury them around the compound. Uh, once they had been buried, the rece researchers took the squirrels out of the compound and immediately went around digging up all the nuts that they'd buried and making notes of where they were um, and then left the squirrels for between 2 to 12 days, uh, uh, during which time they were only fed reasonably sparsely. Um, then when they actually came to retrieving the nuts, they uh, didn't feed the squirrels at all for a 24-hour period to kind of, I guess, sort of model the onset of harsh, a harsh winter. And they went round reburying all the nuts in the same sites as they'd been buried, as well as in a bunch of additional locations. Um, then they released the squirrels one at a time and watched where the squirrels went and where they dug and all that kind of thing. And as they kind of predicted, what they found was that each squirrel would dig up significantly more of its own caches than those from other caches, uh, those other ones. Uh, despite the fact that those other caches were often equally prevalent and sometimes, you know, closer to the squirrel's starting location and all this kind of thing. And they therefore conclude, somewhat defensively, I feel, that squirrels do demonstrate spatial memory and aren't just running around digging random holes and anyway, scrub jays can bugger off. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the point kind of raised to, to address it is that the scrub jays don't merely have spatial memory, which a lot of animals do have, but they have genuine episodic memory. Yeah which is kind of spatial, like, the next level up. Certainly, um, I, 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 and, you know, this is 
a pretty nice demonstration of space. Oh, yeah, no, I, I've got no way. problem with the experiment. I mean, it's kind of... There is a degree of abstraction involved. They are only implying spatial memory from this behavior because I can think of at least one possible alternative explanation for it. So you release your squirrel into an area with some nuts to bury. Presumably, the squirrel will pick locations for its nuts based on some internal criteria. Maybe it likes the soil a certain consistency. Maybe then it likes landmarks. Maybe, you know, it's, there's some degree of individual differences in the preferential locations for squirrels. Um, when it comes to burying the additional catches, in this experiment, this was done by humans. Now, they did only bury nuts in locations that had been used by other squirrels, which is right. a, certainly a good step. Yes. Kind of takes into account generalized squirrel preferences. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there wouldn't, as I say, be individual differences between different squirrels. So it could be that when it comes to retrieving the nuts, Mr. Test Squirrel is actually just thinking, now where would I have buried the nuts yeah. had I been here before? Not where so did I... So an internal criterion. Yeah. A bit like the ground squirrels who go, oh, well, I know what I smell like. This person smells familiar to me. So they overcome the problems they have with memory. But if you just compared them to family members, you wouldn't know that and you'd assume they had memory. Yeah. So okay. being an evil psychologist, my immediate thought on reading this study is, where are the lesions... <laughs> because yeah, if you if really couldn't do it with you, hippocampus lesions yeah if you really want to know about squirrel spatial memory what better way to test it than chopping out the bit of the brain that does spatial memory uh thus have reasoned psychologists for generations why stop now if spatial memory is being used hippocampal squirrels should be pretty bad at retrieval of nuts uh if whereas if they're just looking for like ideal cache locations or whatever hippocampal lesions shouldn't have any effect or actually they probably would because it messes up topographic stuff anyway i don't know yeah. uh, ask a neurologist <laughs> that yes is... those many many squirrel neurologists are out there <laughs> exactly well that rather does lead on to my next point i think in this case given that squirrels are not as far as i know standard lab animals I think it should really be up to the squirrels to decide. If they really want to restore their standing within the spatial memory animal community, then maybe they should be allowed to like pick volunteers from within their own ranks to submit to neurosurgery. Because for all we know, they may okay. be perfectly happy with their having their position usurped by scrub jays. And in the long term, not being very good at spatial memory probably means you're less likely to suffer from research participation in psychology experiments. Which if you're <laughs> oh, yes, it's a very adaptive animal, strategy. He writes a very good thing, as evidenced by the fact that my first thought on reading this experiment was, we should begin scooping out squirrel brains. <laughs> yes, which you'd not really ever thought before. No. Probably. Uh, that you know of. Yeah. So there right. we go. Squirrels. Do you have any more B-facts? Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! B-Facts! facts You're right, it is starting to get quite annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Already so early in the show. Uh, B-Facts. During World War I, honey was used to treat the wounds of soldiers because it attracts and absorbs moisture, making it a valuable healing agent. Further magical properties of honey involve... Include that it never, ever spoils. Ever. That's pretty good. Yeah. Like, it's literally magical, magical goldenness. Yep, that's definitely the scientific reason why it never spoils. So, uh... 
moving from things that never spoiled to someone who spoiled their career, let's talk about meerkats. Now, <laughs> our non-British listeners probably won't suspect why I instinctively hate meerkats. They might assume Compare that I didn't get on market. with... Com- com- I'm building up to this. <laughs> right. They might assume that I didn't get on with the Lion King. And maybe that I had some issue with the meerkat being named Timon and then people calling me Timon. As far as I remember, I don't mind being called Timon. Uh, I can't remember who does it to me, but someone's... Pumbo would be worse. Exactly. Um, you know, because you have to be polite with Pumbo. You have to call him Mr. Pig. Now, in England, our advertising breaks on TV are filled with three main sorts of adverts. The first are PPI claims, you know, common across the world, the most common form of advertising and the major business model of every business internationally. I'm not going to explain what they are. The second are personal injury lawyers, which is self-explanatory. They send you letters feeling pretty personally injured, at least in my experience over the last week or so. Uh, and the final sort are not insurance companies, but meta-insurance companies. And everything may be better with meta, but this certainly stretches that. These are insurance comparison websites, which are essential but boring. And thus the most famous one advertises in a long-running campaign featuring Russian meerkats, which are not a thing, based purely on the similarity of the word market to meerkat, and that's it. So, Robert Webberdes... Two only slightly similar words. Well, exactly. Robert Webberdes, someone we admire on the show, has sold his soul to these hacks. I mean, I just typed in market to a sounds-like search, and why couldn't they have gone for comparethemargate.com? Well, I suppose if you've been to Margate, you'll know why building an ad campaign to inspire people regarding money using Margate <laughs> might not work. Wow. Sociological burn. Yeah. Anyway, it saddens me that this is what meerkats are reduced to, given that unlike uh, Robert Webberdes, they didn't have a choice. And research actually shows them that they're quite nice animals. Could we, could we just pause here? Yeah. I assume by... Uh, I did not know that he had a double barrel surname. No, but uh, as, as just with his comedy partner... Uh, uh, David Mitchell Corrin, uh, he is married to Abby Burdess from that Mitchell and Webb look, and thus his name is Robert Webb Burdess. I see. That's just a thing uh, we I do would, on this show. I have a small anecdote regarding this particular ad campaign and this particular comedic actor. Okay. A friend of mine, uh, a guy called John Henry, who is a sort of, he is a, a stand-up comedian and is in a little comedy troupe, and he's been in a, a a couple of shows on uh, BBC. He was in that boy with tape on his face thing. Oh, really? He was on tape face tapes. Who did he play? Yeah, he was. Uh, do you remember the skit with the uh, the hunter hunting the party goers in the woods? Yeah, yeah, that was him. How exciting! How have he, I not heard of you knowing this guy before? He auditioned for the role in the meerkat adverts and was in line to get it until Robert Webb swooped in and was like, "Actually, I want to do it." Because wow. apparently I haven't got enough money already yeah. and uh, just, yeah, stole it. Wow. That's a we, good story. Uh, it is a good story, story bro. Not for John Henry, but anyway. No, no. There we go. Minor anecdote. Because he wouldn't Continue. be selling out, I don't think. <laughs> no, he would be way. just selling. Exactly. <laughs> so, Santema and Cluttenbrock, cool surname, of Cambridge University, published this research this week. And it was really hard to find online but it makes it the most up-to-date research we've ever done or could do until we get so successful that we get sent pre-release articles to publicise. <laughs> and they were no doubt aware of the meerkat's use in advertising and wanted to boost their non-commercial image. And they were especially interested in vigilance behaviour. Now, vigilance could be a selfish act that happens to benefit the group, or it could actually be intended to serve the group. So, vigilance tends to occur when an animal has eaten to satiation. 
uh, which I must admit is, doesn't seem to be very much part of human behaviour. You know, oh, I've had a really big meal. I'm really feeling quite full. I guess it's time to go on guard duty. I suppose that's because we're predator rather than prey animals. Anyhow, in contrast to those who've suggested that this is selfish behaviour, they point out that feeding tends to increase many cooperative behaviours too, and that vigilance tends to put an animal at greater risk individually. So, meerkats are cooperative breeders, which means that there are a number of non-breeding helpers of both genders, up to 40 accompanying each dominant breeding pair, which is certainly one way to solve overpopulation. And make sure you always have a baby. So... Meerkats forage about eight hours a day, and during this either do sentinel behaviour, where they go up to a high place to look out, or so-called bipedal vigilance, the familiar standing up and looking position. So they use a set of distinctive language-like alarm calls when they do spot a predator. So then there's the man- Oh crap, it's a lion! <laughs> oh no! Oh no! It's a snake! Oh, it's a snake! Etc. Um, <laughs> the rest of the time, eagle. The general tittering is just badger, 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 badger. <laughs> yeah, which is weird because I don't know how many badgers live in South Africa anyway, um, and I don't know how many badgers live in Russia. But I can tell you how many meerkats live in Russia. Uh, they uh, there this. are many Russian badgers. There's <laughs> people like this hello in Russian, but sorry, it's like what's the black and white, badger. red all over. Uh, <laughs> communist badger can you imagine a badger in one of those big furry russian hats doing yes, I can. like cossack kicking dance with its arms crossed uh i can i wish i had one but it would probably be dangerous <laughs> given that like drug resistant tb is like in humans in russia i imagine it bolshevik was- badger uh yeah so uh meerkat pups uh, apparently they're pups rather than kits despite it being a meerkat they have meerkat they don't have mere kittens that's ridiculous exactly biologists are weird anyway <laughs> pups stay in the burrow until 30 days then they come out foraging with the others being dependent on adults until 90 days of age and gosh i bet humans wish that the dependency on adults ended after 90 days given that if you account for comparative lifespan that would make human children self-sufficient at age two <laughs> so this helps consider whether behavior is selfish or cooperative because if it is selfish Vigilance won't change at the point the pups join the group foraging, but if it is cooperative, it will. So, they looked at the amount of vigilance, foraging, and food found before and after a group of pups joined in in the Kalahari Desert in South Africa. Now, these meerkats were apparently used to humans watching them, so maybe a bit of a confound, and each had been painted with a unique mark, because apparently it is possible to paint a sleeping meerkat without disturbing it or needing to catch it. It's just not seen great behaviour. Who I want to meet the man who found that out in the <laughs> first place and to find out whether he was drunk at the time. Yeah, just some like South African park. Guys, I've got the best idea. I've got two tins of Dulux and we can have a whale of a time. <laughs> uh, so they observed 40 females and 49 males, all of them helpers rather than breeders from 11 different groups and they did two 30-minute observations on each individual both before and after the pups joined so key results the presence of pups increased sentinel behavior in male and female helpers significantly bipedal vigilance increased for females who also therefore foraged less and collected less food when in close proximity to pups both males and females displayed more vigilance and foraged less and when pups were in the group females spent more time close to them than males so cooperation is clearly going on rather than selfishness accidentally benefiting the group 
They suggest the differences in gender behaviour come from the costs of the behaviour. Females are apparently philopatric, which I've looked up. Apparently that means they stay near where they're born or return to it. Whereas males tend to wander more, including looking for breeding opportunities in other groups. So females gain more from a single group's reproductive success and males need more resources to do wider travel, so have to eat more to build up that. So they point out it might be correlational. There may be a mediating variable, like pups attracting predators to the group. And so they call for experimental work. I can't quite figure out how you'd set that up about, you know, cooperation. But, you know, they managed it with rats freeing each other before getting a bit of chocolate. So I'm sure there'll be some kind of horrific prisoner-based experiment for me. <laughs> um, it, Whilst the, uh, the work of... Um, Zimbardo uh, and his ilk has been largely abandoned by the human psychology community it has been warmly embraced by the animal psychology community yes it has and so basically they conclude the most likely explanation is that meerkats are cooperative and altruistic so isn't that just a lovely way to end feeling all warm towards all these animals well that will never do so be fucked <laughs> not the bees we're going to leave it there this is actually uh, quite a good B fact and reasonably nice point to end on. On April 1984, on the April 1984 Challenger flight, 3,300 bees housed in a special but confining box adapted perfectly to zero gravity and built a nearly normal comb. But, interestingly, they did not go to the toilet. Since bees excrete only outside the hive, the poor bees held it in for seven days. A NASA spokesperson said the space hive, which is one of the best combinations of words I've ever heard, was, in quotes, just as clean as a pin, close quotes. There we go. Space bees, the best kind of bees. <laughs> That's pretty good. So to, to wrap up, just animals are pretty great. I don't normally say stuff like that. I do, I mean, I, 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 my brother technically owns the guinea pigs, but I do take some vague responsibility for feeding them from time to time. I do think they're mm. cute and fur furry. Um, cute and furious. Um, <laughs> but I think this, is, this episode has definitely shown how great animals can be. I think so. What I like about this particular one is in previous animal episodes, we've kind of dealt with the, the big celebrities of animal psychology, you know, the rats, the scrub jays, the limuluses, although we didn't do them very much. Um, this week, it's been very much the fringe animals. And it seems to me that a lot of these studies are not done for the purposes of finding out more about, you know, psychology in general. Yeah. They're really just because someone wanted to know what what's with the otters and the, the shells or yeah, what, what are the meerkats up to? You know, what, what what's with that? Yeah, exactly. Which is uh, the, the, the life of an animal behavioural researcher, <laughs> I guess. Um, Take your animal and then study But it. yeah, it was really hard to find anything on otter psychology. I was determined to do otters. And it's like on the third page of Google, that particular paper, because it's just psychologists called otter up to that point. Huh. Uh, yeah. Well, you just like stop bringing it up. It's really, it's a real struggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's nearly over. The show's it's nearly like over. About, you know, Tim, about 70% of my everyday brain function is occupied coming up with puns well and about 20 uh, percent of that is otter puns and exactly exactly it's all right, some man. of the most punnable it's all right just breathe just breathe <laughs> if you want to contact the show and give feedback that we might uh, read out and attack you for your low heart low low brow approaches if we know that, <laughs> um uh, then you can contact us on uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com 
uh, you should. I would very much recommend you going onto the WordPress page, psychomedia.wordpress.com this week. There will be many, some related, some less related uh, things, pictures, exciting things on there. There will also be a link to the website from which I have drawn the amazing B facts. Uh, there are, in, in fact, 20 such facts, and you can read through them. They're all pretty good. Hooray. Um, you can find us on uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash psychomedia. Me and Ben both update that when we see something interesting, as well as anything I forget to put in the show notes and then want to later. And finally... And finally, as always, you can badger us on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash teampsychomedia. Yeah, and... and- Tetrarch Angel, yep. at, at Tetrarch Angel. Yep, I, I will invade your ice world. Um, and until next time, goodbye. Think about otters. Um, <laughs> next time may be a very special episode. Um, it's going to yes, be. big it is. It will be Valentine's Day before the next episode comes out. So just think about sea otters on Valentine's Day. Uh, remember that if you like Valentine's Day, they hold hands to keep from drifting apart. But if you don't like it, that the male otters bites the female otter's nose until it bleeds during courting. So there's something for unless, everything with sea otters. Unless you're into that. I mean, either way. <laughs> well, if you're into that, but not into hand-holding and so on and so forth. You know, I think if lizards have taught us anything this week, it's we should be open-minded on our attitudes towards alternative sexualities. Yes, certainly. And until well, and on that start, note... <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Ah, I am amazed and pleased that we managed to get through a whole episode on otters with only one otter pun. I mean, I'm utterly stunned. I mean, I can't believe that there weren't otter puns. I mean, even given that it's otter in California than here. And I mean, they put stones in their armpits. I mean, that would be a terrible otter uh, odour. Which reminds me, of course, why do Enhydra Lutris only watch arthouse films? Because they prefer the work of an otter. Uh, <laughs> And Hydra Lutris, of course, meaning otter in the water. And uh, <laughs> given that Hall and Shaller used a scope to find them, you know, a spotter. Uh, and then they wrote their results on a blotter. And then the noted locations of the behavior with a plotter. And then, of course, proving scientifically tool use in animals for the very first time. Had a celebratory drink of otter pop, which is a real cocktail. And then obviously would totter home and try and hire some kind of y- otter to uh, take them out to the otters for even closer uh, observation. <laughs> Did you have any more you wanted to do, Ben? <laughs> uh, that was utterly incredible. Uh, yeah, and that's it. We're otter here. We're, that is the from, uh, otter who done. <laughs> from now on, we will otter no more puns. Exactly. <laughs> we probably otter stop now. Uh, yeah, we really otter. Otherwise, you'll get all otter under the collar. <laughs> Ah, oh, dear. We'll be the bugle one day, Ben. <laughs> I mean, just need to capture them and wear their skin. <laughs> I think that's what Mubarak said. <laughs> and on that note, we're out of here. <laughs>